Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode six of Across the Isle. My name is Philip Teal, and I am joined in Isle Studios <laughs> by Carla Donnelly. Hi. How are you? I'm great. Enjoying this heat. Uh, yeah. In today's episode, we're going to give a kind of summer edition Ooh. of the show. We'll discuss one production in the usual way. That's The Medea Project by Spark Productions, directed by Perry Cummings, at the very tiny Brunswick art space. It was beautiful. Then we'd love to extend our usual coming soon segment to include the whole year. Yep, our stupidly ambitious goal is to glance at the 2016 seasons of some Melbourne-based theatre companies. What stands out at the first riffle through the program? Mm. Do you subscribe? Love a good riffling. Yeah. Oh, and I always <laughs> think, should I subscribe? I mean, is that a thing? Do you subscribe? I subscribed for years. I subscribed to MTC, Malthouse, Red Stitch. So diligent. Uh, but this was back when I was like under 30 and had cheap tickets. It definitely provided me an education, but I'm much more selective now. I don't have the money. Like, I, have I a, just don't have the money. Absolutely. And I have, yeah. however, a really happy memory of the stickers that classical music organizations send you to put in your diary to indicate oh my an God, MSO gorgeous. show. I would resubscribe just for that. Um, but it's actually less and less likely that I'm going to purchase a package deal. So... To the chagrin of these great companies, I turn up kind of unexpectedly based on rumours and gossip. Uh, So it's that tone that we're going to project into the future in the second half of this episode. But first, the Medea Project, what was your experience of seeing this show? So first of all, I want to talk about how it was really important for me to cover a local production. So I lived in the city of Moreland for seven years. Now I live in Parkville. So you and I both live in the city of Melbourne. But when this popped up, I thought, oh, look, we can have a Greek trilogy. So much Greek stuff this I year. I know. It's wonderful. Yeah. And I just loved the idea of going to a little teeny tiny art space in Brunswick and having that experience. It could be bad. It could be good. But it would be an experience nonetheless. I particularly was drawn to this production because it describes itself as a multidisciplined theatre piece using filmed interviews of the women of Moreland to create a modern Greek chorus, giving them the opportunity to share their thoughts, feelings and experiences while working with an ensemble of dedicated performers to create a new take on this classic tale of horror. So it sounds pretty pat in terms of grant speak. You know, they got a grant from the Moreland Council, but it was all women, all women production of Medea in Moreland. So I thought, let's go. It sounds great. And it does open, doesn't it, with those women talking about themselves. A video screens in which the so-called modern Greek chorus talk about being women. They talk about love. They talk about maternity. And in a way they're kind of setting up a reading of Medea before the play is performed. In some productions, um, there's a twist where retrospectively you see everything differently. It was beautifully the opposite of that. We were invited to think through a lens or view through a lens from the outset. And I found that so effective. I mean, this this was about today. It was about women in a local area many of whom are migrants and mothers today, and really invited us in advance to empathise with the central character of the play. To me, it was um, inherently personal and I get really frustrated by theatre in Melbourne because even though we're importing 
plays from other countries. We're telling tales of old. I get really frustrated that they're not told in an Australian way. I don't feel like it would take very much to kind of translate that. So my frustration and my anger is, is that are we so programmed by the American monoculture that or the European kind of influence that we don't respect art that isn't within that frame? I really believe it's that, like tall poppy syndrome. So it makes me really angry, which is why I wanted to seek this out. But also like we went and we watched these videos of these women who also spoke about whether they would forgive a mother who had murdered her children and you know they interviewed maybe eight or nine local women and I'm like oh yeah that's a chick who makes me coffee at True North and you know there was like quite a few familiar faces and I'm like oh yeah I know that lady uh, so I really I feel got that experience that Americans or Europeans are socialized around in terms of it really connecting with their point of view and their worldview. And there's been a pattern with the ancient Greek plays that we've seen this year in um, 2015 that those seem to be the shows that are most able to be adapted to a local context. Their universality culturally um, allows them to be flexible in a way that an Australian premiere of the latest New York Pulitzer Prize winning play doesn't. Um, And again, like with Antigone at the Malt House and the Back Eye at Theatre Works, the Medea Project, um, although really at a different pitch and at a different scale, was able to make the story do something contemporary and local. Um, some quotes from that opening video were so on point in terms of contemporary citizens of Melbourne yes. who are women and refugees, for example. You know, they think I mean to harm you. I mean, no position to fight with kings. Maybe actually those quotes are not from the video, but the actual production itself. There was definitely, however, a real attempt to make the characters of this ancient Greek play seem like they might be our neighbours or indeed the people that we, you know, interact with when we go down the street. But that's the reality of our world. And I think that is something that is inherently missing from the representation of the art scene in Melbourne is that, you know, like something's like 36% of people who live in Melbourne were not born in Australia. Sure. You know, that's mm. a, an extraordinary amount of people. And I have the expectation that our art scene will be representing everyone, not so much everyone, like you can't kind of encapsulate everyone it's a broad sphere but there needs to be some kind of speciality and this play out of everything I've seen this year this play was the thing that I felt the most home at home with and I was the most profoundly moved by it was in my turf on my space with women that I recognized or women's lives that I recognized and it was such a nourishing experience for me to go and experience this and it made me even more angry anger on top of the anger that I already have that I don't feel as a mixed race migrant woman in Australia represented by the arts that my tax funds yeah and and again to return to the availability of the ancient Greek theater to be as specific as this production was the idea that rather than simplifying the character of Medea to what she might have represented within that original 
democratic culture, which is how the play is studied and thought about very often. Instead, it was expanded back to the experience of exile, the experience of maternity. And specifically, we have to say, in this case of a kind of postpartum depression, an exploration of what it means to have that specific experience of psychologically turning away from or somehow against your own children that does have some strong explanatory force in relation to the acts that Medea takes part in, in terms of her revenge against her husband. In some ways, despite what we've said so far, I found the production very loyal to the traditions of ancient Greek theatre. But that is universal. Of course, of course. And yet, I mean, you could always modernise differently. You could have maybe more actors, say, than the three that is the kind of traditional number of ancient Greeks who would have performed with a chorus this production. actually jotted down a little list of things that I found quite traditional. The the fact that Medea finishes the play elevated in this kind of machine machina above the stage is completely true to the original play. They were staring at us in a masked way, I found. They didn't look at each other but projected themselves gesturally in a way that was not about facial expression but was all about voice and body, which again quotes what we understand to be the tradition of ancient Greek theatre. And so for me, it was just that perfect balance between an explicit contemporary politics and, you know, reaching that point through the loyalty to the traditions of ancient Greek theatre. I found it incredibly sophisticated. And if I had seen that on stage at Red Stitch or Malthouse, it would be at home. It was wonderful. It was it was exceptionally well performed and there were little twists of delightful originality the use of pop music wonderful <laughs> the way that they would break out into songs you know i'm i'm here to remind you for example which i i noticed was perfectly medea like i mean that's exactly what she might have said Alana's to Morissette. jason you know yeah. absolutely also there was this fascinating focus on the princess against whom medea Um, conducts part of her revenge by sending her beautiful clothes that poison her. Uh, That was led into by a real exploration of the body where they would touch different parts of their bodies and kind of mesmerise the audience by talking about their own bodies that Medea is about to attack. I found that really compelling. And I I connect with you very strongly around the moving nature of this production. Maybe it was because we were in the space we were in with cars rushing by outside. I mean, it's a beautifully embedded space. It's so Brunswick. I mean, I had the smell of garlic all over me when I went in there from my kind of emergency falafel um, beforehand. Um, Yeah, so somehow the experience was very spatial, very local. It was something about going to Brunswick for me. It was inherently impressive, I have to say. Like, I'm, I've experienced a lot of art in this town and I know that the most amazing and life-changing things can happen anywhere. So I'm not snobbish in that way and I'm curious in that way, of course. So I went there with no prejudices in terms of what could happen in that space. But it was a tiny little art gallery off a tiny little alley in Brunswick. And it also really sang to my heart in that way because, you know, I lived in Brunswick for seven years and I feel like that's kind of the quintessential Melbourne experience of discovering life-altering art on an alley, off an alley, off an alley. And there was this really wonderful moment, which I'm not sure that you heard, when Medea was about to kill the ba- the children and she raises the cot up to the heavens and this like 
cat fight broke out in the alley. I was like, meow, meow. <laughs> and she's like holding the bassinet above her head. And everyone was like, <gasps> it was this wonderful moment How great. of witchcraft. And particularly, I think, steeped in terms of the high Greek population in Brunswick. And it was such a full-bodied, three-dimensional experience for me, this play that... It will be one of my takeaways for the year, I have to say. It was really wonderful. Yeah. Great show. Yeah, thanks, Philip. It is intermission. Hi. So, let's talk about December. I haven't Did seen you, you in see ages. Did you see things? Did you notice things? I went to the opera. Did you? Yes. You must have had a very beautiful date. Tell me all about it. Well, I was with... Many people in their 70s and 80s and a glamorous best friend. Oh. And we had Who chocolate. Was there a killer? We had chocolate given to us we in huge tubs. Chocolate. Not only was there an actual intermission from Opera Australia, but they feed you as well. I know. How there mag- was some magnificent. There was some significant product placement there. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. And we're talking about the marriage of Figaro. The season's well and truly over now, but I thought we might remember that kind of silly, funny, farcical, long... Oh my God, so long. ...show. Beautiful, though. Well, we have to tell everyone that we were inspired to attend after we attended Opera in the, in the Bowl. Yeah, so that very elaborate piece of marketing was successful <laughs> in our case. Thanks, Mazda. Yeah, thanks for the inflatable <laughs> cushions. We'll see a show. <laughs> I bet Opera in the Bowl was sublime. Oh, it was it was great fun. Yeah. Absolutely. I love those outdoor things. Opera's greatest hits. Mm. Picnic. Mm. You and I and a few other people. And I mean, you can't complain about a Mozart opera. The Marriage of Figaro, I can complain about a Mozart opera. <laughs> I can complain heartily because I think it needs at least half an hour to 45 minutes shaved off it. <gasps> Scandalo. Ah, es- <laughs> es- Scandalo. It is too fucking long for how light and trite it wants to be. Well, my problem with the production, now that we're in this mood, is why would you make a new production that looks so old? It looked like they just pulled it out of the drawer. Yeah, it is true. Like, they just kind of dusted off some old costumes. And and they're so careful in their marketing to differentiate between new productions and those that they are recycling. There was nothing original or interesting or contemporary about it. I mean, we've just discussed this mesmerizingly hyper-local Medea. And then you get this Mozart, heavily funded by Commonwealth Arts money. $25 million. (gasps) And all of it going on what? Just being same, 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 same. Peplum hems, apparently. Mm, So lucky they did give us chocolate. Uh, It was too fucking long. (laughs) And my butt was asleep by the end of it. But I did enjoy quite a lot of it. Do you know, I think this was like, I think it was an opportunity for Opera Australia to hook the two of us in different ways back in to opera going. And it failed. I don't think it failed. I think a hundred bucks is an appropriate amount of money to spend on a good ticket to the opera. So they definitely reeled me in in that way. Thank you, Entertainment Gold uh, book. <laughs> if I spent $150, I would have been fucking ropeable. Sure. But uh, I was I was into it and it seemed like the cast who seemed to be so weighed down by the production of producing opera in 
the modern world because there's such a small pool apparently they draw from that they're all like this is so boring <laughs> uh they all seem to be quite enjoying themselves like i think we talked about it after and saying it's not quite a gilbert and sullivan but it's not quite a verdi oh no you know. indeed and i mean in its day you can imagine that it was quite popular Sure, absolutely. But the thing that actually I found quite remarkable was watching it, and it is literally the template for every soap opera that has ever come after it. It's very plotty, isn't it? Yeah, and I don't know whether it is derivative of something else and if it's patient zero or not, but it was quite fascinating to see, you know, like all of the... You know, like Mm. it it was full-blown Days Mm. of Our Lives slash Mm. Spanish soap opera. Mm. I did like Figaro. He was he was a bit of a naughty Impressive. wife. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anything else? I have to tell you. I have to confess. And this is like the the winter that I watched all of Buffy in a sleeping bag on the have ground you been of my binge watching. That yes. was the Collins Dictionary year of uh, word of the year in twenty fifteen. Oh, binge watch. Catch up. It's like ten years <laughs> old, love. Fuck. It's a dictionary. Be kind. <laughs> uh, and yeah, but they like. Probably made lol before. What did you binge watch? Star Trek Voyager. Ooh. Oh my god. It is Ooh. so good. Full immersion. Like, I can't even. I've applied to go and do a gender studies degree next year, and I'm like, I'm going to write a dissertation on Star Trek Voyager. That's exciting. And then I was like, uh, probably 4,000 people have done that before me, but I don't care. <laughs> Captain Janeway, I'm coming for you. So what is it? What's the what's the hook? What is it? Well, I think I actually like I actually want to write some kind of essay or dissertation on feminist television of the nineties because there is so much. Like when you look at this in terms of the like Scully and so many other shows where there was like strong female characters, it was really like this period of time where there were so many women leaders. And I feel that television sees itself as having some kind of apotheosis now, but there must have been some transitional shows, some moments that actually set well, up. Well, no, I actually think that the now that I look at it, like 90s TV was actually where it was at. I like it. Good like thesis, it is good thesis. It is, the con- <laughs> it is the concentration of strong female characters with technical careers. So we've got Ali McBeal, who's a gun lawyer. We've got Scully, who's a... I don't know what she was like, a forensic scientist FBI. or something like that. Mm. FBI forensic mm. scientist. We've got Captain Janeway, who is the female captain of a starship, starship in, you know, 500 years in the future. And Buffy and Angel. And Buffy and Angel. Like, we've just got so much. Really, it is probably the first most diverse show on television. We've only got one white man in the entire main crew of characters we've got a native american character we've got a female captain we've got half klingon half latina woman engineer wow yeah it's fabulous and i just binge watched it's disgusting but it's seven seasons of 25 episodes what new levels 25 45 minute episodes that's perfect but if you want to fast forward you can kind of go from season four to season seven and that it's it's sublime but Mm. if we really want to kind of get some good stuff into you start from season one i highly recommend it everyone highly recommend it okay well we're not running back into the theater because we're going to flick through the brochures outside instead Yes, we're going to think about we're gonna 2016. We're going to stay in the foyer. We're going to stay in the foyer. We're going to just ignore whatever's going on indoors because I want your initial thoughts 
about the seasons that we have at our fingertips as we record. And we're going to look at the Melbourne Theatre Company, Malthouse Theatre and Red Stitch Actors Theatre, just because these are the companies that we have to hand and they have all made big announcements about their seasons and it's fun to kind of think about what the highlights might be, if there's any kind of trends that you see developing, what you would most recommend people to uh, look out for in their ticket purchasing for 2016. Sure. So let's start with the MTC. The first thing that I notice is that the Neon Festival that we talked about in our very first episode has gone and has been replaced by some other thing called Neon Next. Oh, I didn't even notice. As far as I can tell... What they're doing is rather than hosting independent companies, they are collaborating with those companies in a kind of in-house project-making way so that instead of five... Are they actually producing theatre? Well, yeah, but instead of five next year, I mean in 2016, we get one from... um, It's called... Lilith, the Jungle Girl by Sisters oh, Grimm. Sisters Grimm, yeah. Yeah, so, so I mean, we like Sisters Grimm. It was great to see them, but there was something about seeing them alongside four other companies in that buzzy, strange atmosphere of the Neon Festival. So it seems that maybe the Melbourne Theatre Company thought, we need to take control of our brand. We need to stop having people kind of bitching about us in their short presentations huh? down the street, as they so often did. Um, but... Yeah, no more Neon Festival. But I'm sure that we'll we'll look forward to Lilith. Which is actually quite funny because Helium was the pioneer of this type of inviting independent theatre makers to create their own works at a main stage company. And Helium started and then Neon started the year after. And then Helium finished last year and, oh, Neon is also finishing this year. So I'm not sure... What is happening there? But um, well, my that's question a good about it is that it's branded so clearly as a Neon Next production that it's almost the worst of both worlds. If the Neon Festival is going to draw a different audience than the subscriber season for MTC, why would you kind of take one production that you're working on really intensively with Sisters Grimm, make it a part of your subscriber season, but keep reminding your subscribers that it's not part of your main stage season. Because they don't want to fuck off their 65-year-old white men patronage. It'll be great to hear more from it'll MTC. Because it'll be an extraordinarily queer production. It's called Lilith the Jungle Girl. It's going to star a gay man as Lilith the Jungle Girl. It's written by a Indigenous writer who's doing the dramaturgy, Nakia Louie. I think they're just trying to, like, send up a flair to their subscriber base and say, this is not usual. (laughs) Yeah. If you get it a part of your subscription, just know that it's experimental, quote unquote. Yeah. You know, but it's also sending up the flair to all the queers to go, hey, come. This is your little corner of MTC. Main stage, main stage, girls. (laughs) Main stage, girls. Come and get some bubbly. Did you see things in MTC that were of note? Well, obviously the Sisters Grimm show, I'm extraordinarily interested in and it's funny that you say do you subscribe because actually after looking intently at all of these programs I'm like fuck I actually do want to subscribe because most of them have a short subscription of three programs uh so Sisters Grimm would be my number one pick but there was a couple of other things that I quite found quite interesting it's the first year that I've 
beyond experientially, intellectually looked at these things. Mm. So I had a subscription to the, the MTC for a very long time and I just got absolutely fucking sick of it because I just felt like it was plays by disillusioned academic men in their 30s who hated their mothers because they had a career and quote-unquote abandoned them in childhood. So it was just all these like crazy women plays and how they, you know, dissolved the family unit with their psychosis. With some Chekhov. With some Chekhov. Like, I, it just got so revolting. But Brett Shee, who is the director of, creative director of um, MTC, very proudly announced that, you know, he's been the director for three years and he, this was the year that he was the first year that he was able to get parity in terms of directors. So I think, although that's disgusting that it's taken that long, it's also a very good thing in terms of moving forward. The things that I find interesting is that actually I think out of all of the companies, this is the most diverse program Great. that I can see. Uh, there's like Asian women, writers, producers, directors, a lot of women directors. There's some queer content. There's some indigenous content. It's not all kind of middle of the road. I think the Malthouse has kind of done a bit of a classics program, which is fair. It's Matthew Luton's first year, so I would probably want to do a lot of classics myself. But uh, I think Lungs looks pretty good with Bert Labonte. And uh, the reason why it looks good to me is because of, of him, who was our lead in I Am a Miracle, if you remember, and Kate Davis, who is uh, one of the creative directors of Rabble. She's doing the costume design and she's an incredible creative woman. So that's coming up soon. Yeah. Thank you very much. That looks really good. Straight White Men by Young Jean Lee, who is an Asian-American uh, theatre producer. Good she's, title. She's extraordinary. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I think that's quite a daring daring piece of programming and skylight love a bit of colin frills cool yeah what about you well i'm noticing a little bit of a trend and that is adaptations of australian novels Ah, interesting a little bit earnest but could be interesting to watch as a theme jasper jones is the one that mtc is doing and let's just segue to the malt house because well over that's at the, the that's their house, only indigenous that's their only explicitly Indigenous contenting, yeah, right. content programming. We've got Nikki Louie, who's an Indigenous playwright, who's dramaturgy, but yeah, Jasper Jones is the only explicit Indigenous play. Okay, and at the Malt House, there's a new Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yes, I'm very much, that's on my list. And there's a bit of a tradition in Australian theatre of adapting novels. I mean, it's not automatic that you would put novels on the stage, but it seems to be something that Australian literature lends itself to, or there's some kind of two-step process whereby if you love something as much as we all love Cloud Street, then you've just got to see it on oh the stage. Oh, God, shoot me. Well, I shoot say that, I say face. that smilingly, but Jasper Jones has already been compared to the stage adaptation of Cloud Street oh because we're gosh. meant to remember that so fondly. Tim Winton, <laughs> no, just fucking but no. But Picnic at Hanging Rock, yes, I will see that. And I'm very interested in seeing closely. that as well because that's Matthew Luton and it's also Tom Holloway who is a Tasmanian playwright. Well, interestingly... Luton is also directing Edward II. Mm. And that's where I saw his name and thought that might be an interesting one to look at. It's sort of the traditional most now at the Malt House of radically updating classic works of theatre from back in the day. Sure. Um, perhaps a little more contemporary is War and Peace. Now, this is by a Berlin group. It looks very interesting. And it uses video, like live video. So you're in the theatre and you're watching something that's happening not there, yeah. that's being broadcast, that's somehow part of the city in which the um, production is being staged. Again, it's 
based, I suppose, very loosely on the novel by Tolstoy. Um, But this group is called the Gob Squad. And I think that's going to be exciting. Like, that's one of those shows where you sort of know in advance that you'll be able to talk about it and think about it and be challenged by it. But again, I'm pissed off slash frustrated by this because it's like, surely our main stage programming is ours, right? Leave these kinds of programming. Young Jean Lee is extraordinary. But Gob Squad, Young Jean Lee, leave these programmings to the international festival. Like, why are we taking up space with this? With our main stage programs. So ideologically, it's really frustrating yeah. to me. So, so if you were to do nine shows as part of a subscription season as a company like the MTC, then that should be local material. Producers. Yeah. Maybe not so much local material, but local producers. Mm. And it's why, like, I get, I told you, I get frustrated with the American accents or whatever on Australian stage. And I understand that some of it is technical experience. You know, like, these people need to get technically behind producing plays like this and getting different accents and all that kind of stuff. I accept that in a small portion, but I, you know, like we're so saturated by the American monoculture in my theatre, in my live theatre with Australian people on stage in Melbourne. I want Australian accents. I want Australian produced content by Australians for Australians. Yeah. And I don't think that's too much to ask. Yeah. Or Australianized classics. I love the classics. But do you understand what I mean? I do. And it is a lot of hours that I've spent listening to Australian actors doing bad American accents or British accents in my time. Seems unnecessary. Even I just to don't care. Adaptation. I don't care about that content. Yeah. You know, and I'm the one with the money who's actually paying money to buy the tickets. I'm not a reviewer. I'm not a, an arts person. You know, like I'm your bog standard non-boomer person who's paying to go to the arts. And I want to see Australian content by Australians. Maybe we need to have something like the Pulitzer Prize that's local and prestigious enough. Because that seems to <laughs> be such... Nothing is prestigious that is local. It's a huge part of the marketing at companies, including companies as diverse from each other as the Melbourne Theatre Company and, say, Red Stitch Theatre, to say, we're bringing you the East Coast American show that they're all talking about in the New Yorker. I don't care. It, it's yeah, evident yeah, yeah. that some people do or that they perceive that to be a thirst in the audience. It's like the Orange Prize or whatever. It's just like it's all – it's not stuff that I enjoy. Mm. And I don't know whether that's because I'm Australian or I have different tastes, but all of that shit is meaningless to me. Yeah. You know, talking about MT, uh, the Malt House, Piggy and Hanging Rock looks very fascinating to me because we all love the film and it's, I think, burned into our psyche as Australians. Miranda! Miranda! Uh, Glass Menagerie looks good to me only because I'm completely obsessively in love with Pamela Rabe, so I just want to go and see anything that she's in. And if we talk about Indigenous programming uh, on the main stage, we've got Black Showgirls, uh, which is written by Nakia Louie again, and that will be on at the Moldhouse at the end of next year, which looks quite fascinating. And one other thing is actually Gonzo. So talking to teenage boys about their pornography habits original work produced by a woman so that will also be quite fascinating intriguing but the thing that i did notice about the Malthouse's programming is that there's no queer theater there's no queer prescribed queer programming this year you could say edward the second i mean you could make a fairly firm prediction that that will be queer okay um because edward the second is a king who likes the men of his court and 
attempts to be open about it and it backfires. So there is... Okay, interesting. And so I mean, there's stories about homosexuals, but not necessarily queer theatre. I mean, really, that play by Marlowe has survived because of its homosexual content. Okay. Um, what about Meow Meow's Little Mermaid? That's got a queer title. Look, I love Meow Meow. She's terrifying. She's another person who likes touching people and falling <laughs> into the audience. Which, you know, I'm beginning to think, am I masochist? Is that why I go to these things? I want to hate her, but um, she's abs- she's actually quite fabulous. So I, that's one that's on the, the list and for really me. And really informed. I mean, she just knows all about cabaret. She's she's actually quite extraordinary. Like, you look at it and you're like, oh, bleh. But um, not the kind of, I don't want to go and see some kind of cab- cabaret. Cabaret has such a bad word in this town as well, which I think is quite fucked. Mm. She's she's absolutely amazing mm. and she is a world-class performer so I would highly recommend that show That's as coming well. up really soon. Um what about Red Stitch Actors Theatre? Well, Red Stitch I've got to give them a lot of props because they have always been they're almost like a Marxist community like the actors run the studio and they all contribute to the creative direction of the studio. They have always been Far and beyond in the 10 years that they've been going, they have been the highest um, supporters of female directors and female writers. It's actually their 15th birthday. Is it 15? Mm. So when I look at the program, they have far more women than men directing. But when I also look at the – I love the art direction of the program. If I look at all of the programs, their art direction is quite beautiful, but there's not actually a lot of information about the plays. It's so hard to choose. That's actually a good point. Yeah. If you're new to theatre going, how do you really know what things are going to be like or about or in what style they're going to be? I mean, I'm interested in the Red Stitches, The Honey Bees, coming up in June and July – because my friends know the director, right? oh, you know, okay. and like I've got that. That's a little, little bit book. red stitch, yeah. Sure. That's kind of what happens. Um, and then, like, that's my reason to click on the link, and then I see things like world premiere, and oh, okay, the world's honeybee population is dwindling. Interesting angle on an environmental crisis. I just think white person problem. Well, of course, but I mean, <laughs> what I'm saying is that the only reason I'm that far into the program is because Caleb Lewis is a name that I'm familiar with. Okay. Um, partly because he turned down a big prize from Belvoir Street Theatre because they had been sexist. Fabulous. So he's a bit of a kind of gender politics yes. warrior. Uh, so let's all support that by going down to Red Stitch in June. Red Stitch. Uh- I think they have fucking amazing gender politics and I have no issue with them as a, a institution at all. They're entirely watertight and they produce excellent work. But when I look at the program literally on the face of it, it's all white people, all of it. Well, there's a whole video in which the white people go to the forest and make a video about themselves making a video. So I think that there's an opportunity, as they say, for... You know, diversity there, but um, they've always been extraordinary in supporting their female actors. And I noticed that Neri Dawn Fair, who is a person, a woman of colour actor, is directing this year. So they certainly have that behind the scenes support, but it would be nice to see a few kinds of different faces in their program. It's so delightful that the trend across these companies is towards greater diversity and you know, a level of interest in different stories that's going to be quite exciting to be witness to. That's definitely my takeaway. Like, and to my to my surprise, if I really want to give a diversity award to any of the programs, it would be the MTC. Fantastic. Which is 
extraordinary to Leading me. the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Appropriately. I, w- I will kind of just get in there. Maybe it's a coming soon. I'm not sure. But um, there was one production from the NPC that I was really gutted that I missed this year, which was uh, a production of North by Northwest starring everybody's boyfriend from the 90s, Matthew Day. Matt. Um, <laughs> and they're bringing it back for a week in early January. So I'm definitely going to hit that up. Delightful. Well, at the time of recording, we don't have information about all of the companies, but we will look with real interest and excitement at the smaller companies around town and the direction they're going to take. In 2016, TheatreWorks, I've already said in a previous episode, is one that I'm really watching closely. The Arts House, with its really strong links to the Melbourne City Council, did some wonderful things in 2015, so it'll be great to get out to those spaces. Can you think of other... 45 Downstairs would be interesting to watch. Love it. Fantastic. So that was fun and it's going to be a really interesting year. We're going to be there in the audience across the aisle from each other uh, having a chat and it's going to be great fun. What are you going to do in January? Like, do you have some things coming up in your own theatre going life? Midsummer. Hello. Midsummer is actually, I do try to, catch quite a lot of theatre because they have it in that weird place down in St Kilda which is like is it the Gasworks or something they have a lot of stuff down there I love a bit of lesbian circus cool venue yeah yeah who doesn't it's generally like fringe it's a pretty good breeding ground for first goes of a lot of shows so I generally hit up quite a few things for midsummer what about you I'm going to Sydney Ooh, I know Ooh la la. I know last year I did it Sydney Festival, because there was enough kind of quirky new classical music programming that is just not happening in Melbourne at all. Yeah. Uh, and so I get my kind of annual dose of um, relatively thoughtful classical music by going to the other place. Uh, Do you think it's the pull of the Opera House, like for classical musicians to perform there? And the Angel Place Recital Centre, which is one of oh, the venues used a lot. But yeah. look, we have the Melbourne Recital Centre now and there was so much promise when that was opened that it that would become... Well. It's a, Of course, it's a remarkable Acoustically, venue. Acoustically, it's extraordinary. But the programming dropped off really quickly, um, I feel, so that... Pretty quickly, it was the same type of stereotypical classical musical audiences that were being appealed to by the programming there. Um, and as I've said already, the Melbourne Festival doesn't seem to have that much of an interest, even though Richard Tonietti is somehow part of the staffing of that organisation. Richard Tonietti, who's Australian Chamber Orchestra, has like a big focus on Beethoven. Ugh, I think it's year. the time of year as well because a lot of acts, whether they're classical or punk or rock or whatever, it's easier for them to conceptualise to coming to Australia in January when it's summer. Great point, actually. So I think they're really into that and, and touring in summer. Good time to be in Sydney too. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I'll tell you all about it when I get back. Oh, what's your highlights? Give me a couple. You don't remember? I have to look at my tickets. Leave me alone. Oh, no, sorry. But last year, the thing that was wonderful was the Goldberg Variations. No, no. Um, Is it the Morrissey this year? The well by Bach, like for four hours. Um, yeah, no, I've forgotten. No, Morrissey was vivid this year. I can't remember the, who the headline act is. We was. don't go to Sydney with specifics. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Okay. That's it for our December show. Yeah, and that was, Yeah. So thanks for listening up until now. It's been a really nice first half year. Happy New Year. Of our podcast. So if you want to get in touch with the two of us, do so at us.
at acrossisle.com. We've got a Facebook page, Across Isle. We've got a Twitter account, Across Isle. Thank you very much, Ron, from Shack West Productions, who has been producing our show from the very beginning and provided the ambient pets for today's recording. <laughs> Thanks, Thank you. Frank. Hello. The music you're listening to now is by Mark Barrage beautiful and there's lots more by him at SoundCloud and thank you as always to all of the artists who put on the shows we have seen this month and throughout 2015 you make our lives infinitely more thoughtful and edgy without you we'd be forced to change religions (laughs) what do I mean by that I need to go off script anyway thanks so much Carla thanks Philip and Ron happy new year see you next time